if you have the patient or person close their eyes and hold their arms up, one arm will either just drop dead to the ground. To the ground. <laughs> just falls off. <laughs> Bob popped off. <laughs> to the ground. Lip guards and... Welcome to the Lad Life Podcast. I'm Michelle. And I'm Shane. And together, we are the Lads. Or, widely known as Michane. Our passion for all things marriage, health and fitness, and the fire life runs deep. Our goal through this podcast is to share our life experiences in hopes to encourage you through any stage of life you might be in. So grab your spouse. Or a friend. Suit up and grab your pre-workout as we share the Lad Life. Welcome back to another episode of the Lad Life Podcast. I'm Michelle. And I'm Shane. And today we are starting a, I guess you could say this is going to be part one of a series of medical emergencies. We're going to cover some of the main medical emergencies that occur, some things that Shane runs on, and then we're going to talk through the definition of those, some things that you can look out for, some statistics, and then Shane is going to explain these medical emergencies in a way that non-medical people like me can understand what they are and what we can be looking out for them. I say we are going to be talking about them. I will not be doing any of the talking because I don't know anything about this. Shane will be doing most of the talking. That's me. Yes, that's you. So let's kick it off with the first one, which is a heart attack. Do you want to share what the dictionary definition of a heart attack is? The definition of a heart attack is necrosis of a region of the heart muscle caused by an interruption in the supply of blood to the heart, usually as a result of occlusion of a coronary artery resulting from coronary artery disease. Wow. There's a lot of medical terms in there. So why don't you break that down and kind of explain what those big words are? Probably sounded like wah, 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 (laughs) wah, wah, wah. You were talking a completely different language. So let me break this down for you guys. Necrosis or death of a region of the heart muscle caused by an interruption in the supply of blood to the heart, usually a result of an occlusion or a complete or partial blockage of a coronary artery, which is a vessel that supplies blood to your heart, resulting from coronary artery disease, also known as CAD, and that is the main cause of a heart attack. Okay, so that was a little better, but you do your thing and explain what a heart attack is. Let me dumb it down a little bit more, make it a little bit more simpler. We'll call this Shane's definition for dummies. (laughs) When your heart goes, ow. Oh my, (laughs) that's good. Yeah, so to dumb it down, I guess, a little bit, um, a heart attack is when So you have two parts of your heart. You have your electrical side and your mechanical side. Your electrical side is what makes your heart squeeze, and the mechanical side is the valves and the blood and the muscle of it. So when you have a heart attack or a blockage in one of those vessels that supplies blood to your heart, your heart um, slowly dies. Part of that heart slowly dies, and your heart muscle will never grow back or regain life if you want to call it so when that heart muscle dies over time then you'll have long-term cardiac issues so when you have a heart attack your heart is starving for oxygen it's uh, your heart uses a lot of oxygen so when a blockage occurs in one of your 
areas of your heart it's starving for food so that's where that pain and discomfort comes from um, most of the time the blockage is caused by buildup of plaque also uh, known as coronary artery disease what i call, talked about earlier plaque is made up of deposits of cholesterol and other substances plaque buildup um, could eventually start building up on the outside of one of your arteries and slowly but surely close it off um, to either have it partially cut off or fully cut off but eventually it'll narrow it to where that straw is getting clogged up so a good way to think about it is you have a hose and you get a pebble stuck in it um, that pebble will eventually grow and grow and grow till it eventually cuts off that blood supply to that area or um, you could also have a clot that comes to that area but most of the time it's just a slow buildup of plaque over time so so like the pebble is the plaque yes okay and then the hose is your artery that go to your heart yes okay do you want to share with us some risk factors some risk factors include high blood pressure high cholesterol and smoking so why don't you share some of the statistics about heart attacks? Do you want to share them? Sure, I can read them. <laughs> there are more than 3 million heart attacks a year in the U.S. 50% of heart attacks end with a fatal event, which is death. Most people will ignore symptoms for hours or days, and once they get help, it is too late. Full blockage. So like the pebble is fully blocking the heart? Yep. There's no coming back from that? There is, but it's uh, your chance of survival is not as high as if you went right to away. seek out help right away. A lot of people like to ignore heart attacks because they don't, they're in denial. They, don't, they think, oh, it won't happen to me. Hmm. Interesting. Speaking of that, one of our friends from church, actually, he... So as we go through this, I just kind of want to put it out there that heart attacks don't just happen in unhealthy individuals. So our friend from church, he had one, um, I think just before COVID or mid COVID, and he is a very healthy man. I mean, he cycles, he did CrossFit, he eats extremely healthy. And so nobody is excluded from possibly having a heart attack. So just kind of keep that in mind. So heart disease is the leading cause of deaths in adults in the United States. And then the CDC states that someone has a heart attack every 40 seconds in the U.S. That is crazy. That's a lot. So, like, if this podcast... Oh, I shouldn't even have brought this up. If this podcast is 40 minutes, that means there will be more than 40 heart attacks while we're... I don't think that math is right. That, that math is right. It's 40. No. That's a lot. Some of this podcast is 40 seconds long. Somebody had a heart attack. <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to hand the microphone back to Shane, and he's going to tell us what are some of the signs and symptoms of a heart attack. So males and females might experience heart attacks differently. Doesn't mean every male and every female will experience what I'm about to say, but typically the females will experience a little bit different stuff than the males will. So let me talk about the males. Males will typically experience left shoulder pain that might radiate or move up to the jaw. And their back, like their sh 
back shoulder. Um, back shoulder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Back shoulder. We'll, we'll <laughs> stick with that. Um, they'll also feel like a pressure sitting. Like they always say like an elephant is sitting on my chest or somebody sitting on my chest, like an extreme pressure that doesn't go away. So it's a constant tightness. Somebody, some people might say it feels like somebody squeezing my heart. So it's a very discomforting feeling. It's because your heart is starving for oxygen and it's slowly dying and it's releasing chemicals that affect you as well. It's very interesting. There are some cases out there that men will go to the dentist because they think they're having some sort of dental issue like a toothache or something when they're actually experiencing a heart attack so it's very interesting so with females on the other hand sometimes they will experience upper abdominal pain so they won't experience any of the shoulder pain or jaw pain or back pain or anything like that they'll experience their pain in their abdomen instead of that other area so it's very different where your pain will come from if you're a male or a female. Just because of that doesn't mean if you're a female you won't experience shoulder pain and stuff like that if you're having a heart attack. Those are just common signs and symptoms per gender. Also, you might experience fatigue, lightheadedness, an abnormal heartbeat. You could be very anxious due to having a heart attack. So multiple different signs and symptoms to look out for oh so i won't say have you ever because i'm sure you have but in the last we'll say in the last year have you or so have you run on a heart attack yes i have so that brings us to the next part what happens when you call 911 for a heart attack so if you think you're having a heart attack you're experiencing chest pain all that stuff you call 911 in Seminole County, this is what we do. So dispatch will tell you, if you're not allergic, obviously, to take aspirin. Aspirin is not a blood thinner. That is a common misconception. It is an, it's actually an antiplatelet. What, is, what that means is you have that pebble stuck in your artery, stuck in your hose line. And when you take aspirin, things want to stick to it to make that thing make that pebble bigger but when you take aspirin it prevents it from growing so it's a anti-platelet meaning the blood will pass by that big old pebble or rock in your artery and it won't make it larger to make the the occlusion worse so aspirin is a great thing to do if you're feeling like you're having a heart attack, dispatch most likely will tell you to take it if you're not allergic to it. From there, if you have a history of heart issues or chest pain, they might take tell you to take nitroglycerin if you are prescribed it. That pretty much just makes your arteries larger. So instead of having a straw-sized artery, when you take nitroglycerin, it'll open it up to like a fire hose. So it's a it'll it's a vasodilator, so it'll make your vessels a lot bigger, so more blood could get to the affected area. Hold on. It's a what? Vasodilator. What is or, that? It dilates, just like if somebody puts drops in your eyes. It makes your dilation is big. Got it. Okay. Yep. Keep it. Yep. <laughs> so it makes, makes your blood vessel bigger. Okay. So that pebble that's stuck in it doesn't clog up all of it, 
or part of it, it'll make it a lot bigger so a lot more blood and oxygen could get around that clot or occlusion. So once we arrive on scene, EMS arrives on scene, the first thing we'll do is do an EKG. We'll put all the stickers and leads on you and see exactly electrically what's going on with your heart. We could see if you're having a STEMI, which is a ST elevation myocardial infarction, a large term for a heart attack. Mm. So on an EKG strip where you see like on medical shows where it's like boop, 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 like the green little line, we could look at that and see if you're having a heart attack or not. Because other medical issues can cause chest pain or chest discomfort. So just because you're having chest discomfort or pain doesn't mean you're having a heart attack. So after we do an EKG and we see that you're having a heart attack, we'll either give you aspirin if you haven't had it already and give you nitroglycerin. We have where we carry a, a nitroglycerin spray and we carry um, it in a vial so we could do like a nitro drip over time. That pretty much just will keep your blood vessels open and big so more blood could pass through and your, your affected heart muscle isn't starving as much. We're giving it some food. And we don't give nitro um, to everybody that's having a heart attack. It obviously depends on where the clot and occlusion is and the person's blood pressure. Because if you take nitroglycerin, it will lower that person's blood pressure. So we have a few things we got to look at before that. So after we give you some medication, make you more comfortable, we'll start a, an IV on you, draw some blood, and we do that to expedite your labs, so speed up the process because when we get to the hospital, we could just give them the blood work. They could already start running it and get that ball rolling. Um, we do blood work because when your heart muscle is dying, it will release a chemical called troponin, and that's the true test of if you're having a heart attack. Each kgs, I'm pretty sure, don't quote me on this, but they're about 90% accurate. So there's some room for failure. It's a machine, obviously. So the true test of a heart attack is to measure somebody's troponin levels, and that's through blood work. Once we are on our way to the hospital, to a STEMI receiving or a heart attack receiving hospital, we will contact them, let them know we're coming with a heart attack, what type of patient, all that stuff, so they could alert the cath lab. I'll tell you what a cath lab is in a second, and alert the cardiologist that's on scene or at the hospital so they could get the ball rolling because every minute more heart is dying. Time is uh, very very sensitive so when it comes to a heart attack because we want to open up that blood vessel and get some food to that heart muscle so it doesn't permanently die f for the rest of your life. So once we get you to the hospital, we'll bring you to the cath lab. What a cath lab is, it's a big operating room pretty much where they will send a wire through either your leg or your arm um, all the way up into your heart and then once it's in the heart they'll inject some dye to see exactly where the blockage is and then they'll put a like a metal straw or a stent it's a small metal mesh straw that will be inserted into the vessel to keep it open and it will 
never close or get blocked up again. So after that, that heart muscle will start getting fresh oxygen and blood flow to it again. And then that's one way to uh, help with a heart attack. Depending on how severe it is, they might have to do some other type of surgery, but most of the time that's what they do. Cool. Okay, so do you want to tell us some ways that you can prevent a heart attack? Pretty simple. Just adopt a healthier lifestyle, exercise regularly, eat fruits and vegetables, stop smoking, get a regular checkup with your doctors each year, and visit your cardiologist if you have one. And then also, do you want to share about the calcium score? So a calcium score is fairly new, I think, within the last five to ten years it's a new technology it's very simple they advise anybody I think over like 30 35 years old to get a calcium score what it is it's just a simple scan you go into like this little CT scanner you lay down and they take a picture of your heart they slice your heart into 64 pictures and pretty much they'll give you a score of how blocked up or how clogged up each of your arteries are in your heart And depending on if you don't change your lifestyle or not, it will predict how soon you'll have a heart attack, depending on how blocked each of those arteries are. Yeah, so both of my parents had it done, and I think it gives you like a score, I don't know, I'll make it up, 1 to 100, like the likelihood that you're going to have a heart attack. So it's really cool. Um, So I would strongly suggest looking up some places in your area of where you can get a calcium score done. Do you have anything else you want to add on a heart attack? Just if you start feeling severe chest pain or discomfort or any of the symptoms I talked about, call 911. Have a family member help you. If you can take aspirin, if you're not allergic, take it. And also just relax. I know that's going to be hard to, but more you worry and more you freak out and have anxiety, more the heart is under distress. So if you could just relax a little bit and just realize help is on its way, then less damage you'll do to your heart. And the big concern with pushing it off and pushing it off and days and days go by and it's still there, that's more muscle that's dying. And eventually your heart will say, I give up, I stop. And that's when a cardiac arrest could happen. So don't push off the symptoms. It happens. As you saw, over 3 million cases a year in the U.S. sooner you get into the cath lab, the better outcome you could have. So I think this is one of the topics we'll cover in another part of this series. But really quick, do you want to expl- is, like, explain what the difference between a heart attack and cardiac arrest is? Just a real quick high level. Two seconds. Heart attack is when your heart's still beating but starving for oxygen. A cardiac arrest is when your heart stops beating or it doesn't effectively pump blood to your rest of your body more than two seconds but that was good nice and quick cool so um cardiac arrest i believe is one of the ones we'll cover yes in the future cool okay okay our next topic is strokes are strokes is strokes i don't know a stroke there you go a (laughs) stroke a stroke so why don't you kick us off with the dictionary definition of a stroke the definition is pretty simple. Damage to the brain from interruption of its blood flow. There we go. There we go. That was easy. Yep. Not too many big words in there. Yeah. It's very similar to a heart attack. Some people may even call it a brain attack. It's when something happens to prevent oxygen 
getting to a certain portion or part of your brain. There's two types of strokes. There's a bleed or a blockage. And high blood pressure or uncontrolled chronic, meaning you don't take medicine or you don't do anything to help lower it for a long period of time, high blood pressure is a leading cause of stroke. So I want to put this PSA out there because, one, I'm a hypochondriac, big time. Shane can testify for that. Yes. Um, anything that happens, I'm like, I'm dying. I need surgery. I have it's cancer. <laughs> it's very bad. Um, but so when he says high blood pressure, I think it's important to know it's high blood pressure over a long period of time. When I so I'm pretty sure white coat syndrome is like a real yes. diagnosis. I'm pretty sure I have that. So a few years ago, when I was getting blood drawn every year for our Um, health benefits if we get um, our blood drawn and blood work done we get so much money into our HSA so I got that a few years ago and the guy who did my blood work blew my vein but it wasn't like Shane said he's blown a vein before and it was not like he blew it bad apparently and he didn't know so he didn't wrap my arm or anything well my arm like got this softball size knot on it and then a few days later I bruised from my shoulder to my wrist like it was really bad so I've always kind of just not liked the doctor or needles but that just put it over the top so when I go into the doctor even if it's just for a random checkup and they're not even taking blood or anything I get like my blood pressure is super high that doesn't mean I'm having a stroke so I would say to Monitor, if you think this might be an issue, monitor your blood pressure in controlled situations. Like when you're at home relaxing, if your blood pressure is high, that could be a sign of not something great. So when he says high blood pressure, he doesn't mean just when you're at the doctor. Yeah, and that's meaning a long time too. Just because you have high blood pressure once doesn't mean that you're going to have a stroke that day. So for patients of ours, I've seen people with a blood pressure of 210 over 100. That's really high. Um, An average or a good blood pressure is 120 over 80. Anything over it, obviously keep an eye on it and monitor it, but don't freak out if you get a one high blood pressure and like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have a stroke. Oh Lord, Shane said I'm going to stroke out. Let me call 911. (laughs) Don't do that. No. Can I really quick share to share with them what how I told them my what are they stats? What is it called? Your vitals. My vitals yesterday. Yes. So I went to the doctor yesterday just for um, my checkup, whatever. And Shane wasn't with me; he was coming off shift. And so whenever I'm at the doctor, not with him, I always tell him what my vitals are. But I forget like what is what. So I said arm thing, and I gave him the numbers. Finger thing, and I gave him the numbers. <laughs> he was dying. It's pretty funny because arm thing means blood pressure, <laughs> and then finger things means the pulse ox she puts on it. So we're pulse her heart rate and her oxygen saturation after he sent me a few cry face emojis he said your numbers are good see you in a little bit (laughs) so anyways okay moving on continue on with strokes i don't know where we left off you want to do statistics yes okay you want to read it i think you should okay so there are more than two hundred thousand cases a year that's That's a lot that is a lot yeah that's a lot So some signs and symptoms to look out for for a stroke are an acronym 
called it's be fast so b-e-f-a-s-t and i'll tell you what each of those stand for so the first one is balance so if a person normally could stand and walk on their own and now they're stumbling around and they they have weakness on one leg or they can't move one leg that's a, a sign of a stroke also their eyes most of the time when you're having a stroke you'll look they the the affected person will look up either left or right towards the affected side of the brain f is for facial droop that's a big one if you tell somebody to smile and only half of their face smiles and the other half is droopy and their eyelids are droopy the whole side of their face is droopy and the other side looks normal that's a big sign as well there's some other medical emergency you know medical conditions that cause facial droopage that aren't strokes and just because somebody might have facial droopage doesn't mean they're having a stroke there's uh, a medical condition called bell's palsy that you could be normal talking normal and then out of nowhere side of their face will go droop and go droop will like just droop down and they're normally they're fine they're talking and then all of a sudden it's back to normal and that is a different medical condition not related to stroke there's a famous guy if you ever watched game of thrones the big guy the mountain they call him he has bell's palsy there's some interviews where he's talking and then boom his face starts drooping and they're like you okay he's like yeah i just have bell's palsy so it's very interesting so moving on to a arm drift if you have the patient or person close their eyes and hold their arms up one arm will either just drop dead to the ground to the ground <laughs> just falls off Bob bopped off. <laughs> to the ground. Lift your arms up. Just fall down. <laughs> I didn't mean fall to the ground like it's going to pop off. I meant falls back to their side and the other one stays up. So arm drift meaning they don't have control of one side of their one arm compared to the other. Next is speech. S for speech. You could ask them to repeat something. We always tell them to repeat you can't teach an old dog new tricks and sometimes they can't say it sometimes it's slurred speech sometimes they mix up the words completely and they think they're saying it correctly but it, they might say old teach dog new tricks can't so it could be all mixed up so that's another sign of a stroke and then we always t for time note the time because time is very sensitive just like a heart attack longer Time passes, more damage to the brain. I don't know if you know the answer to this question. I have two questions. My first one is, do they, like, are they, do they know Aware? what's happening? Yeah. Yes. So, like, they know that they're, they can't get their arm to move or they know, like, they can't repeat. Yes. So, like, they know. Yeah. That's so scary. Yes. Like, so, they have full knowledge that they cannot do what they're supposed to do. Correct. Wow. I had a patient once. Um, she was living by herself. A friend came over. They were supposed to hang out. She was found in her bed, f like full stroke symptoms, unable to walk, unable to move, arm wow. drift, slurred speech, facial droop. And I was in the back of the rescue talking to her and she was able to like nod her head and stuff. I was like, you're having a stroke. 
I know you don't have control of your arms. I know you don't have control of the left side of your body and you can't speak. And she was like, she was able to answer and she was, you know, able to nod her head and stuff. And you could see she was worried. So she knows what was going on. You have no control over it. That is so scary. Okay. Then my second question is, will you have always have all of these symptoms or like, could you have one or two of them? So we do a stroke assessment. Um, so when I come to the scene, I will quickly do a stroke assessment. I will ask them to repeat after me that saying. I will check to see if they have facial droopage by asking them to smile for me. I could, I'll do the arm drift, hold both arms up, see if one drops. So that's what I do when I have a stroke patient in the back. You didn't answer the question. What was your question again? Oh my. Will you have all of them, all of those BFAST symptoms, or can you have like one or two of them? So typically you'll have all of them. Okay. Depending on where the blockage or the bleed is that is affecting your brain, most of the time you'll have all of those symptoms. Okay, so my next question, in the past year or so, have you had a stroke alert? Yes, plenty. Really? Yes. Oh, wow. Like how many? I don't know. I can't keep count. There's that many? Yeah. Wow. Any babies? No. No. Good. Okay, so then leading into our next question, what happens when you call 911 for a stroke? We'll do a stroke assessment real quick to see if they're experiencing a stroke. If they are, then we will bring them to a stroke receiving facility. And then I will always ask somebody um, that's on scene if they've when their last scene normal was. Time is very sensitive. We want to know how long they've been experiencing this stroke. So unfortunately, in the pre-hospital setting, there's not much we could do. There's no drugs we could or medications we could give to help somebody having a stroke. All we could do is just drive them really, really fast to the hospital because time is very important. So we'll load them up bring them to the hospital in route there's one thing we could do is obviously monitor them monitor their vitals and stuff but also starting an iv the iv is very important in stroke patients because they need an iv when they do a ct scan i'll tell you about that in a second but we usually will we'll have to do an 18 gauge so kind of a larger Ooh. needle in the ac which is their elbow pit yeah i was gonna say you call it your elbow pit yeah that vein right in your elbow crease um we'll we'll start an 18 gauge at least in that vein that's pretty much all we could do um for strokes once they get to the hospital they'll obviously do a stroke assessment as well um and then they'll they will directly send us straight into the ct room they won't send us to a hospital bed and then to the CT. We'll, we'll, from our stretcher, bring them straight into a CT scanner. We'll switch them over to that bed and they'll do a, a, a CT scan. And that is done of the head or the brain to see if it's either a block or a clot or a bleed. So that IV is important because they'll inject a dye into your vessel, into your vein, and it will travel up to your brain to see if it will show up on the scan. If they see the dye show up in like a pool or like a little gathering in the brain, then you have a bleed. And if you don't, then you have a blockage. So a bleed will show up in a, in a CT scan. A blockage will not. To fix a stroke, 
they have a few different things and it's all very time sensitive if it is a bleed depending on how big it is it might resolve itself and be fine a bleed could happen mainly from uncontrolled high blood pressure pretty much meaning that your blood pressure was so high that eventually a vessel is just pops oh. yeah it just pops in your head and that blood will leak out and cause you to have these symptoms. Or you'll have a blockage, which a blood clot could travel up to your brain and cause these same signs and symptoms as well. To fix a blockage, they can give you a type of drug that it's thrombolytics. It's a fancy medication that'll pretty much break up that clot or pebble, whatever you want to call it, and reintroduce that blood flow to the affected side of that brain. And it's very time sensitive because longer this stroke occurs, more brain is affected and longer it goes on, that person may live with some sort of deficit. What a deficit is, is pretty much what they were experiencing could be permanent. So some people might have permanent facial droopage or permanent speech problems or permanent left-sided or right-sided weakness depending on where that clot or bleed occurred. Okay, so for all of us out there who watch like Station 19, Grey's Anatomy, all the medical shows, for heart attacks and strokes, is it as crazy as they show in the movies when you get there? Like, do you like bust through like the swinging double doors and they're like, we've got a stroke alert. And you're like on the patient, obviously not doing CPR CPR because you don't need to for a stroke. But like, it's like complete chaos. You're like running with a stretcher. Is it anything like that? Typically, no, no, That's it's not because we already have alerted the hospital at least five minutes prior to us arriving with what we have so they have time to get ready for whatever we're bringing in so it's not like we bust through the door and they're like oh my gosh what do you got ah no it's more of it's very systematic if there's a stroke alert called the doctors nurses they know what to do what room to go to it's very well oiled machine same with heart attacks they know exactly who to alert what rooms to get ready and it's so efficient because obviously both of these emergencies are time sensitive so less time lost by being chaotic and crazy um, is better for the patient so when you call and notify the hospital prior to getting there do you actually speak to someone or you just call and like i'll say leave a message and say hey we've got not leave a message but like <laughs> leave a message after you beep. If this is an emergency, hang up and dial 911. Well, I am 911. No. But, like, do you actually speak to somebody and you're like, hey, we're on our way with blah, blah, blah. We'll be there in X amount of minutes. Or do you, like, I don't know. Is it yeah. like an. We speak to an actual nurse. Okay. Yeah. Got it. So there's somebody on the other side of that radio or computer and they are reading or listening to our report and they will. If they have questions, they could ask us, hey, what's a patient's blood pressure? What's this? What's so that? Back so it's, and forth. Yeah, it's back and forth. Okay. So more information, they're more aware of what's going on. Cool. Anything else on strokes? So real quick, I didn't touch on it, but depending on what side of the brain is affected, it depends on what 
side of the body is affected. So it's opposite. So if you're having a stroke on the right side of your brain, the left side of your body is being affected and vice versa. So if somebody's having a stroke on the right side of their brain, either a bleed or a clot, they will have left-sided weakness, left-sided arm drift, left-sided facial droop. They won't be able to you know, have the same energy and range of motion on the left side or grip strength as the right side. So vice versa, same with the other side. So it is opposite of what side of the brain. And typically the eyes will drift towards what side of the brain is affected. So if they're having a right-sided stroke, their left side of their body is all weak, but their eyes are looking up to the right side of their head. The human body is so cool. It's very interesting. Yeah, like who would have thought? Like your body is literally on the outside telling you what side of your brain is having the problem. Yes. That is nuts to me. Um, okay, anything else on strokes? I think that's it. Okay, so our last one for this part is going to be diabetes. Shane said when we were talking about this, he goes, I, I feel like you're going to get on your soapbox for this. Get so fired up. I might get fired up. But I'm going to try and keep it low. We'll see. But diabetes, what's the dictionary definition? Diabetes is a disease in which the body's ability to produce or respond to the hormone insulin is impaired, resulting in abnormal metabolism of carbohydrates and elevated levels of glucose in your blood and urine. Okay, so for the dummies, explain. <laughs> so pretty much you have an organ in your body called your pancreas, and that's in charge of releasing something called insulin insulin helps break down the blood sugar that you eat you don't eat blood sugar let me call it <laughs> insulin helps break down the sugar that you eat so it could be processed when you have diabetes your pancreas either gives up completely and not produces enough insulin and just shuts off and says i'm done with this or it will produce little very little amount of insulin to help with that digestive process is your pancreas the organ that's like extremely long or is that something else that might be something else it depends what is the one organ in your body that's like a mile long those are your intestines oh never mind <laughs> anyways okay so do you have a dummy definition or did you kind of just give us that dummy definition is if you have diabetes it's because part of your body gave up producing the thing that will help you break down the sugar in your body okay so there's two types of diabetes type 1 and type 2 do you want to explain those would you like to explain them i think you kind of know what they are so let's see if you got it okay so this is how i think of it type 1 is hereditary or genetic you're born with it you're born with it type 2 is on you so yes. basically, you've eaten like crap and given yourself diabetes. Pretty much, yes. So I use that. Two is on you. Yes. Pretty much type one, you're born with it or early discovered, you know, um, within the first, I think, like couple years of your life, your pancreas just never produced insulin and you're just born like that. There's nothing you could do about it. You'll always have to take insulin. That's when you see younger kids have insulin pumps and stuff like that because they were born with it. You could be super in shape and eat healthy and be completely fit and 
awesome, but you could still have diabetes, and that's because your pancreas just never wanted to produce insulin in the first place. Yeah, whenever we have a couple friends that have type 1 diabetes, and I, when we first found out, I was like, Shane, how do they have diabetes when they're not fat? And he was like, well, and he yeah. explained it to me. So, And then type 2 is on you, what Michelle was saying. It could be easily fixed by healthy diet and exercise that is later on developed due to bad eating habits pretty much meaning that you ate like junk and you treated your body so poorly that your pancreas is like hey you're gonna feed me tons of sugar i'm not gonna keep up with it i'm just gonna stop so we actually know somebody who had she was in great shape then she got type 2 diabetes and then she kicked it and she's back and she no longer has it so it's definitely cure type 2 is definitely curable yes okay so why don't you share some statistics would you like to sure all right so according to the ada almost 1.6 million americans have type 1 diabetes so they were born with it more than 34 million americans have diabetes about 1 in 10 and approximately 90 to 95 percent of them have type 2 so there's about a 10% of those 34 million who they didn't put this on themselves. Like they were born with it. That is a lot of people. So one in 10 Americans have diabetes. That is That's a lot. lot. That is a lot. Diabetes was the seventh leading cause of death in the United States in 2017. That's sickening. Yes. You can die from diabetes. Uncontrolled diabetes. Yes. Wow. So how about some random facts? You share those. Okay. So type 2 diabetes most often develops in people over the age of 45, but more and more children, teens, and young adults are actually developing type 2 diabetes due to their lifestyle, not meaning they were born with it. And I'm just going to say right here for children, teens, and even young adults, I I put that on the parents. I'm not shaming anybody who's listening to this, but they're looking i'll say children and teens because teens probably aren't cooking their own food but we are as parents we one day are in control of our children's health and like you're setting the foundation for their livelihood in my opinion i just think oh it just gets me fired up just where i told you yeah fired up (laughs) it just goes back to our previous um podcast about discipline and motivation and eating the right things you're setting the foundation for your kids i'm gonna just zip my lips right there and she gets fired up and i do too because it's affecting one in ten people in the united states and it is such an easy thing to just manage and not have it's super simple exercise and eat healthy and you don't even have to like cut out sugar for the rest of your life just maybe don't eat dessert every single night and don't eat or don't drink soda every day like it is i don't i just couldn't imagine ever putting that much sugar in my body so maybe that's why it baffles me so much because i feel like you have to eat really really bad and again i'm not shaming anybody because it's it's reversible, and I would encourage you, if you do have type 2 diabetes, to take it under your wing because it can be fatal. Yes. Speaking about all that sugar, there's a documentary, I think, on 
Mm. Amazon Prime, something like that, about the amount of sugar in each food. If you haven't seen it, I don't know what it's called. You'd have to look it up. But I it's, think it's on Netflix. It's very eye-opening about how much sugar is pumped into everyday food. We'll put it in the show notes below. Um, we'll look it up and put yes. that down there because it's really good. It's very interesting about how much sugar. I saw something that an average person eats the size of a trash can amount of sugar in i'm gonna say one week because i don't remember but it could possibly be one day they talk about it in that document not not a, not a not day. a day that's a lot of sugar. yeah maybe Probably it's a, a week month. or a month but that's a lot okay anyways move on before yes. i keep going so the best way to check to see if you have diabetes or if you're pre-diabetic is through blood work you could easily get blood work anywhere just go get your blood work done. Um, they are checking for your fasted glucose level. Pretty much they tell you to fast for, I think, 12 hours. Mm-hmm. So you don't have any meals or sugar in your bloodstream already. So it's fasted. You haven't eaten your sugar levels. So depending on what your sugar levels are, depends on if you're diabetic or not. So if it's higher and you haven't eaten anything in 12 hours and your blood sugar is very high, then obviously you have diabetes because you're insulin that's being produced isn't strong enough or your body's not producing any to break that sugar down sugar is very actually very necrotic which means it's pretty much flesh eating so pause on that really fast because i do want you to talk about that but i want to so the fasting is a double-edged sword as far as your blood sugars if you did not fast for 12 hours tell them that and they'll mark it not fasted and they kind of just don't really even look at that number because if you ate even like a little piece of chocolate and a bowl of ice cream, your insulin or that part of your blood work, I don't know the words. Glucose level. Your glucose level is it's gonna be elevated a little bit and it might, if they think you're fasted, raise some eyebrows. So if you didn't fast, just tell them. They'll either take your blood and, and ignore that and then have you redo it, or they'll have you come back. So don't lie about that because that could raise some eyebrows. But then isn't it so we know someone who fasted for too long, you'll pass out and die when they yeah, take your blood. just because you're like, oh, I want my blood sugar levels to go super low so I'm not <laughs> diabetic. I'm not going to eat for 24 hours. Yeah, don't do That's that. stupid because <laughs> you will pass out, especially yeah. when they start drawing your blood. <laughs> just because you don't eat for 24 hours doesn't mean your blood, your fasted glucose levels will dip a lot. No, that's not how it works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back. <laughs> we'll circle back to the flesh eating part. Yes. This so is so interesting. Sugar me. is necrotic, so it's very corrosive or it eats your pretty much flesh so depending on if you're if if you have uncontrolled diabetes which type one or type two doesn't matter okay if you have diabetes and you don't control it with insulin people could have insulin pumps people could give them shots there's i could go on for a long time about how people actually control their sugar levels with insulin there's a sliding scale this and that so anyways if you don't take insulin and you're you let your blood sugar just ride and do whatever and you eat like crap and you don't care about your blood sugar levels you will start losing toes mm. and you might lose your feet and you might lose your legs and you might lose your fingers and your hands starts with the small stuff like your toes and fingers then it could go to larger parts of your body pretty much sugar if it's uncontrolled and it's that high over time your blood will start pooling in those lower lying areas your toes and your feet and your hands and your fingers and it will start eating away and causing it to turn black 
and they will have to amputate toes and feet and hands and fingers eat healthy and exercise please i'm begging you we know a guy in our first do area that literally lost both of his legs due to diabetes and he still doesn't control it he's losing his fingers now so if you don't control your diabetes you could start losing limbs it's very very necrotic sugar is very bad so if we run on somebody that has low blood sugar and we have to get their sugar up because we don't want them unconscious we give them d50 pretty much dextrose 50 percent, which is just pure sugar and we have to give them that through an iv and if our iv is not good or patent or you know straight into the bloodstream and if it leaks out into their arm they could lose their arm because mm. it will eat their arm away so we have to be very careful giving actual sugar in somebody's vein sugar is very very dangerous i also read somewhere that sugar is more addictive than cocaine yeah it was in that documentary you have to watch it it's so good it's so interesting to talk about like kids diets and what they're eating they go through like they go through a day in the life of a kid and just how much sugar eats it's very interesting so good they found out if you ever look on a food label prior to 2018 they never uh, you you could see a a daily percentage of how many carbs fats proteins blah 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 you could see all the daily percentages 10 percent, whatever your daily intake whatever the only thing on the back of a food label that will never show a daily intake is how much sugar is in that package until 2018 and 2018 yes then they started adding that but prior to that they never had a daily a recommended amount of sugar you should consume very interesting that's one of the first things that we look at when we pick up something sugar how much sugar is in that like ice cream because no we still eat ice cream not we try it i prefer eating ice cream on places that don't have food labels because then (laughs) i don't feel as bad no that's we're not telling you to do that but um like when we pick up spaghetti sauce that's the first thing we look at because we used to get one that had like 20 grams of added yeah. sugar. Yeah. It's crazy. Sugars and everything. Just, I definitely advise you looking into food labels. So if you are diabetic, most diabetics are concerned about their A1C levels. You probably heard commercials. Oh, this helps you lower your A1C, A1C. And I, I didn't know what that was until I looked it up. Pretty much A1C is your average blood sugar levels across three months. So that's a good way to determine if you have diabetes, if you're actually getting better or if you're getting worse, is that average blood sugar level over your three months. Cool. So long-winded, but those are some random facts and statistics about diabetes. What kind of, so in my mind, I'm like, do you really call 911 for a diabetic issue or concern? So tell us why someone... Tell us what 911 would do for a diabetic issue, or I don't know how to ask that. Yeah. So there's two types. You either have high blood sugar or low blood sugar. And just because you have high blood sugar or low blood sugar doesn't mean you have diabetes, but it goes out as a diabetic emergency. So if you call 911 for a high blood sugar emergency, meaning this most likely is because you have diabetes and you're not controlling it with insulin, you're not taking your medications. So there's a tons of different symptoms you could have with that, but if most likely you have a, a glucometer, which you 
poke your finger, you check your blood sugar, and then normally we'll read a high number. In the pre-hospital setting, we don't carry insulin. We don't really have anything that we can do to help that person. So with a high blood sugar emergency, we just take them to the hospital. And in the hospital, they'll check your blood sugar just like we did. They will see how much insulin they have to pump you with. They'll pump you with some fluids and they'll probably have to keep you overnight check your blood levels all that stuff to make sure your blood sugar gets back under a healthy and safe level we can't do anything for you but the hospital can on the other hand you have low blood sugar emergencies just because you have low blood sugar doesn't mean you necessarily have diabetes it just means you're blood sugars at a unhealthy level. When you have low blood sugar, most likely you're going to be passed out or unconscious. That could happen if somebody's not eating enough and they worked out in the yard all day and they feel lightheaded, dizzy, they come inside, they just pass out. So normally any unconscious patient, we will check a blood sugar just to see what their sugar is. If it is low, then we will, if they're kind of alert or if they're completely out of it, we will start an IV, give them sugar in their veins. And IV, most likely within a minute or so, they'll start coming to and they'll start being more alert and they'll be like, oh, what's going on? What happened? And start asking questions. If they're with it and they're alert and able to talk, but their blood sugar is still low, I'll give them some, we call it oral glucose. Pretty much it's just frosting in a tube. Um, And they eat that up and we'll check their blood sugar again and see if it's to a healthy level. Do you put that in their mouth? Yes. They'll just oh. eat it. Like a, literally like a pop. Ooh. You ever yeah. snack on those? No, they're kind of <laughs> gross. So it's just pure sugar. With low blood sugar emergencies, if we check, we stay on scene and check their blood sugar levels after they, you know, eaten something or whatever, we could leave them there if they have a, a competent adult to check um, with them. But if they're alone, we have to take them to the hospital. Um, if you expe- expect somebody to have low blood sugar, best thing you can do at home, if you have orange juice, give them a glass of orange juice if they're awake. If they're not awake, please don't shove orange juice down their throat. They'll probably choke on it and die. So if they're awake and able to talk to you, then give them some sort of sugary drink like juice or orange juice or something like that. They'll spike their blood sugar up pretty quickly and they'll be more alert. Don't, please don't. <laughs> yeah. Don't shove what? Shane told me to give them more juice. <laughs> I'm just shoving it down their throat. They're not awake. <laughs> Please don't. So those are the two different diabetic emergencies we run on, high or low. Cool. Anything? I'm not going to say anything. Anything else on diabetes? We could go dive deep into diabetes. There's a lot to unfold with we diabetes. Could do a whole episode but on that probably. I think that's pretty much the gist of it. Yeah. Okay, so we we are going to do a podcast solely on nutrition. Now we are not nutritionalist. Nope. We don't have any degrees in this. Yeah, we just are passionate. We've done research. We're very passionate, passionate, passionate about just living a healthy lifestyle, and that's something that I think you can kind of draw the conclusion on. All three of these major medical emergencies really boils down to now there are outliers of course like we mentioned but it really boils down to a healthy lifestyle eating healthy and working out can help some of these not be the case or whatever 
not be your emergency. So we hope you liked this episode. Shane put a lot of time and effort into just kind of making sure he got his facts right and really doing his research on this and diving back into those medic books. Um, and so we ha- we hope that you liked this. We plan on doing more. There are tons of medical emergencies. We could do a whole, we could have a whole separate podcast dedicated to just medical emergencies, but we'll kind of cover here and there just the major ones um, that Shane sees on a daily basis when he's on shift and keep this a series so as always make sure you subscribe like comment leave us a rating and wherever you listen to your podcasts be sure to follow us on instagram at underscore the lad life at underscore the shane lad and at underscore the michelle lad and our newest member at underscore the stanley man cutest golden Make sure you follow him and we will catch you on the next episode of The Lad Life. Thanks for listening.